0: Well, you guys have given us some great questions and um, more than we'll be able to get to, and and part of that is volume of questions. Part of it is also the kind of questions that came in. With this kind of topic, uh, a lot of questions come in that are very situational, very contextual. Here's my story. Here's the scenario. We won't answer those kind of questions, but here's what we'd like to do. We'd like to answer your questions that won't get answered today in another format. So if you asked a question that didn't get answered, um, you won't get an expert like Paul, Tripp, or Timothy Lane answering it for you, uh, but thankfully, <laughs> but we at Desert Springs would love to, to answer it for you. We don't know who wrote in what question, right? Names weren't put to them and or contact information. So you'll need to submit it again if you want your question answered and we don't answer it here today. You can email us at info at desertspringschurch.org. And um, one of our pastors will get back with you either with a phone call or email to talk to you about it and, um, and try to understand what's going on, especially if it's one of those kind of questions uh, that's situational. So let me ask you guys, uh, why not answer questions that are uh, situational, that, that it's someone's story, it's a scenario? Why is that less than ideal to, to answer that in this kind of format?
1: You know I, I, I'm very aware that a conference with the topic that we have been dealing with will draw up out of people those kinds of questions that there, we live in a fallen world, we live as flawed people in a fallen world. Uh, God's grace hasn't completed its work with us yet and, and I'm very aware that there are people uh, who have been listening who are facing hard things. And as Tim was saying, they're not general, they're specific, they're concrete. Uh, Yet, there are so many details that we don't know. And would we know those details, we may have a very, very different way of responding to the question. I actually think that it, it honors the importance of those situations, not to cheapen them by a quick answer in a situation like this. Yeah. Uh, we love you, we, we know that what you're going through is real and sometimes hard, and we want to honor the importance of those things by not acting like we know things that we don't know. Uh, I've, I've found in counseling, I know Tim would agree with this, where in the beginning, I think I have a beat on things, mm-hmm. and as I hear the story, I have a completely different response, and so we want to be careful.
0: Yeah. Okay,
1: Good. All right, so Tim, what do we call this thing
0: that we're after this weekend? We've called it one another ring. It's a bit of a made-up word. Uh, The Puritans called it uh, in every member ministry. Mm -hmm. But can we just brainstorm different ways of putting this? Yeah, I mean, uh,
2: I I think of it as interpersonal ministry. I often talk about how we should be trafficking, if you will, in gospel conversations. Um, And I like to qualify that by telling people I'm not asking them to put their relationships on steroids and do all kinds of unnatural, wacky things, you know, to try to force Jesus into the conversation. But we're, um, how, many, how many of us here have two or three people that really know us well, that know what our struggles are, what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are, what our current circumstances are, what we've been through, where we're growing, uh, ways that they can encourage us. That's that's the level of fellowship, koinonia, shared life together. I think that we're after. So you can come up with probably two dozen ways of describing that, but but that's that's an initial uh, way that I like to think about it.
1: Paul's at the same. I actually have three dozen ways. Do you have three? <laughs>
2: well, I was going to let them come up with the first two, and then you fill out the next. <laughs> uh,
1: uh, if I could just respond, I I think that that what we've developed over this this weekend out of God's word, is just a biblical definition of friendship. This is the kind of friendship that God has called us to. Sadly, much of what we call friendship just isn't really that by biblical definition. I mean, I would argue that most of the people that we say we know, we don't actually know. We, We know a husband who's attached to a wife and we know the kids that belong to them. But the interior of their story... You know, where they struggle with temptation or where they feel alone or overburdened or they tend to question the goodness of God, we don't know any of that stuff because we don't really have friendship that exists at that level. And so I'm I'm not stepping out of friendship into this weird, uncomfortable ministry thing. It really is this is the kind of friend God has called me to be. And the ultimate example of that is Jesus, who is a friend of sinner's.
2: Yeah. And I, I would say that we would argue that this has got to be organic. You know, um, I don't know if it was your brother or not that said something like, you know, I don't spend uh, quantity time with my kids. I spend quality time. And he, he just kind of deconstructs that. You have to spend quantity time with people in order for it to get to the level of quality that it needs to be. And, uh, and it, it's got to be organic. And it's a real challenge in our, in our society, in our culture, to have those kinds of friendships because we're so busy, we're so active, people are transitioning from place to place. Um, we're distracted by all kinds of forms of wonderful entertainment. I love all of them. I engage in all of them, but you know, we, we allow them sometimes to get in the way of, of building these, these rich friendships. And I think we have to also be realistic. I can't have rich relationships with 300 people. But do, but do I have a core you know, around me. And I, th- I think of them in terms of my covenantal responsibilities. If I'm married, that's the first relationship that's important. My kids next, my church, my neighborhood, my community. You know, those covenantal connections kind of help govern where am I developing these meaningful relationships and, and how many can I realistically have uh, at this particular stage of life, season of life.
1: And I would add, it's, it's worth asking the question... What set of values determines the way I spend my time? I, mean, it's, it's, I find that a very convicting uh, question. I mean, it's, it's possible for me, because I tend to be one of those project oriented people, uh, to load so much in my life and my schedule that I have little time left to do this thing called relationship. Yeah. Relationship takes investment, it takes work. It takes time. And so what happens is I fall into the pattern of trying to squeeze a $100 conversation into a dying moment. It doesn't work. Because mm-hmm. I'm cranked up because I want to get this out. And the person that I'm trying to talk to feels that energy so they get a bit defensive. And it just becomes a mess. Yeah. Well, that's the result that I've loaded my life with so many things. I just don't have time to do this thing uh, of maintaining relationships, keeping them healthy... Uh, enjoying the good things that God has called us to. They're really beautiful, good things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, you can you can buy sort of the American dream and all that it entails and have little time mm-hmm. for this much more important, much more beautiful thing.
0: Are we saying that this is just Christian to Christian and it is irrelevant, this thing called church? So church is optional, or maybe it's a good place to hook up in these... Christian-to-Christian Christian relationships. What's the relationship between church and these things that we're talking about? The,
1: the way that I think about that is that is that preaching is incredibly important because it, it is the formative discipline of the church. It forms the formative foundation. We're trying to get everybody going in the same direction, everybody understanding the same same things, everybody writing on the same tracks. Uh, what personal ministry does is take that formative foundation and it it uh, offers it it in corrective discipline that that what I we do generally in preaching we can now do a specificity in the life of this particular person so so personal ministry needs preaching because that's where the foundation is laid for people a way of thinking about themselves and thinking about life uh uh, personal ministry then takes that and, and applies it to everyday life. So they're, they're complementary. You, you need a church that's healthy in both areas.
2: Yeah, I think the, the, the church is a place where you are being brought into covenantal relationships with one another. There's a commitment. Um, I am, you know, we're called in Hebrews to obey and submit to leaders and we're to commit to one another there are these, there, there's this covenantal relationship that we share as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. So is that, that is that membership? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it, it works itself out in this concept of I'm a member of this particular body. I'm a member of the broader body of Christ, but I'm going to invest my time and energies here. And you know what? I'm going to do it through all the vicissitudes and ups and downs of whether or not I like what the church is doing. Now, I know we have bigger questions, you know, when do you move to another church, but... I've been in a church for 12 years At uh, since I left the pastorate. My family's gone there. And over the 12 years, there are probably, I don't know, 200, 300, 800 things that I haven't liked about what's been going on in the church. I, pr- I think I'm probably in a normal church, you know, and it's, it's not big stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a good Bible-based, good theologically-oriented place, but I've made a commitment and Don't let me get too technical here, but I do think the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are, are helpful for us. The sacrament of baptism, believe. There's an individual call to believe, but be baptized. What does it mean to be baptized? You're being incorporated. There are a lot of spiritual images there about being cleansed and all, but it's also incorporation into a new community. And the Lord's Supper is discern the body of the Lord. That's not just me thinking about, all right, am I... Am I living rightly before the Lord? But there's also that corporate dimension as I come to the Lord's table because in chapter 10 of First Corinthians 11, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says we are one loaf in Christ. So as I discern the body of the Lord, I'm coming to the Lord's table regularly saying, what are my relationships like in this local body? Um, so, yeah, there is, there's definitely church membership, commitment, vows that one take to... Uh, to live your life and persevere in the context of relationships, even when you don't like what's going on all the time.
1: The, the, the way that I think about membership is it's a localized and concrete way that I give myself, commit myself to the larger work of God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to seek God's kingdom? Well, here's what it means. I give myself to the work of his church I submit myself to the leadership of his church. I commit myself to the ministry of the church. It's all very specific and concrete. Mm-hmm. Versus this general kind of thing, you know, where we sing in a kumbaya moment. Sing for the King of God. Please go on, go and, on. That's good. And then we go out and put another thousand dollars on our credit card, which means we can't contribute to the church because you know. Mm-hmm. This is a way of making it specific and concrete. Why wouldn't you associate yourself with a solid, Bible-believing, ministry-committed local church? Expose yourself to its ministry, give yourself to its ministry. That's seeking God's kingdom. Yeah. Okay, to put these two together then,
0: time spent, right, you said relationships require time. You can't microwave them down to a minute or something. And uh, in membership or, or, you know, officially, overtly committing to a local church, That means that membership in church life can't be sitting in the back, uh, coming in late, sitting in the back, sneaking out during the last song and and thinking that there's my church and church life, right? Uh, So so can you talk about that? What's it look like then to be in a church? I mean, specifically, what's it look like to be in a church and establish these relationships? Can you give some examples that... uh, Ways in which it's different than sitting in the back and attending church, like you attend the movies.
2: Yeah, when I when I used to pastor, I used to we had a new members class. People that were interested in becoming members of the church, and I would say, you know, here here's a bar. This is like the low end bar in terms of you being involved and committed in this church. You're 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 in, you're involving yourself in corporate worship. There's a place where, in a smaller context, you're being known and you're getting to know. Um, and then you're you're in some way learning how to serve and use your gifts for the good of others. So that right there is is the low bar, but that's that's essential for what it looks like to begin uh, to live your life out in community within the context of this particular local church.
1: See, I think there's a there's a critical difference between attending a church and giving myself to the ministry of the church. What what. Giving myself to the ministry of church means I'm going to expose myself to the ministry of others. That means I want to be known. I'm not afraid of being known. I I think being known is a grace. And then I give myself to ministry to others. So I want to know others because I'm not the Messiah. I can't minister to that which I do not know. So so it means knowing others. And so... uh, it's not that I'm attending something; it's that I'm part of that something. Mm-hmm. I'm an organic part of what that something does. It's very different from just showing up on Sunday.
0: Yeah. Okay, so when is it right to leave a church then? Because you know, I hear a lot of good. Um, Encouragement for commitment and staying with it, even if you have 800 complaints over a decade. Uh, <laughs> so someone wrote in, I'm in a church that has a deep-seated culture of self-righteousness and legalism. Do I keep on forbearing, or is it time to go?
1: Well, I'm way too righteous to be involved with a self-righteous church. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even answer the question. I can't even imagine it. You're, yeah, trying, you're
2: trying to get your head around that one, aren't you? <laughs> well, just, I see you struggling. <laughs>
0: I feel like I entered a vortex. You and just gone. did. You opened
2: the door. Imagine such we, a we thing. We told him if he got us up here on stage, at some point this thing would... would <laughs> yeah, something was going to... Something would happen.
1: Uh, <laughs> I would like you to repeat the question.
0: <laughs> How about you, Jim? What <laughs> do you think? <laughs>
1: Just say so you agree with me. I agree with Paul. You
2: know, I, I actually think that that question is probably very similar to an individual asking a more complex counseling question. Okay. I'm, I mean, there, there's some good books that people could read on. Hey, here's some things to think about. I, I think in our our culture, and I don't think I'm saying anything new that we are typically more consumer-driven when it comes to church. We're there to see what we can get out of it. And, it, you know, that, that's got to be challenged initially. And I think what Paul says and what I was saying in terms of here's a bar, that's got to be in place. But we, we, have to, we have to commit and we have to understand that as soon as I enter into a local church, I've just added one more center to the mix. And how I process whether or not I should continue in this church is A little bit more complicated than I think we could we could understand, I will say this i don't think that a single church is the right church for every single person, and you can legitimately leave a good church well to go to another church because of its emphasis and strengths and your gifts and and those are are valid things to do, and it can be done in a very godly way yeah
1: it, um, and I would add to that if if there are things happening in a church that are disobedient to the call of God first church or that distort the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I next ask the question, who am I in this church? Am I at a place where I can engage leadership and conversation, I can affect change or not? Yeah. If I can't, then, then probably I should move on. Second thing I would say is, in a way that's very, very important, Ministry is all about trust. It, it, it may be my issue. But at some point, if, if I'm sitting in the pew, as it were, and I can't trust the person up front, it can't work. Now, maybe I, I'm saying, I, I need to deal with this, but I'm not doing that well. That's an unhealthy place to be. Because I need to be fed. I need to be able to receive. So I think what we're saying is this issue is not uh, always clear. It's it's messy. Uh, we're not called in the New Testament to give ourselves to a church and never, ever leave. But one thing you know for sure, if you've been in a situation where you've been webbed into ministry, where... Uh, you're receiving the good things of the gospel, you're part of what God is doing in the lives of others, and that's because you've experienced knowledgeable relationships, a solid worship. If, if you leave, it's going to be a while before you replicate that. You may be in a new church, but you're not going to have those knowledgeable relationships right away. You're not going to be webbed into ministry right away. You got to seriously consider the impact of that it could be a decade mm-hmm. before you would replicate what you so quickly left mm. yeah,
0: and by and large uh, today there 's this consumeristic mentality, like you talked about the Macyification yeah. of the church and uh, and people leave too quickly, oftentimes, mm-hmm. right yeah. or wrongly, um, you know maybe a, a good and godly way to leave begins with talking to an elder or a pastor. Yeah, a I always appreciate as a pastor when
2: uh, a, a couple or a family would come to me and say, hey, here's what's been going on. We're thinking about moving over to this church. We really like what you're doing here, but we feel like this is a better fit for us. And I would say, bless you. Go go, in, go in peace, and uh, I hope you flourish and continue to grow in Christ. This This church that I pastor is one of Millions of churches in the world. I don't expect my church to minister to every single person on the planet. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah. Another thing I think could be helpful, and it's something that I've I've done. I'm in a situation where I'm not in leadership in a church. I'm involved with the church, and there are times when I have to go to somebody else who's mature, who's sitting there next to me in the pew, and say here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm seeing. Am I right? Am I hearing this right? Have I misunderstood something? Because, this is a theme of mine, you don't actually make those decisions based on the facts. You make those decisions based on your particular interpretation of the facts. That's how human beings operate. And so, you may have missed something. Your interpretation may be wrong. It may be valuable talking to a mature person who's sitting down there with you are, and maybe you'll realize that you've just you've just misinterpreted things
0: paul at our uh pastor's q and a luncheon on friday uh just with a few pastors here in town uh you drew something on the board of concentric circles uh, related to layers of leadership and uh, responsibilities in the church really it's a how uh, word ministry should be per pervasive in the church could you just lay that out without having a dry erase board behind you can you just lay that out for these folks
1: if you can follow this I I drew this picture of these these concentric circles in the inner circle is the pastoral staff Uh, the next circle would be elders and deacons the next circle would be uh, ministry leaders the outside circle would be everybody in the church you want everybody to be committed to the ministry of the church you want everybody to be knowledge and trained in the ways of the gospel. Now, what this means is these guys in the center, because everybody's being trained, won't be just overwhelmed with ministry because they're trying to shoulder the whole ministry of the whole body of Christ because they have all these different people to refer people to. Let me give you an example. Maybe there's a person out here who's a fairly young believer, but they can be an encourager. They can walk with somebody. They can pray for them. They can encourage them. Uh, So these guys here have plenty of people to refer people to. They They won't get overburdened with ministry. It works the other way. The guys out here won't get over their heads trying to deal with things they're not capable of dealing with because they have all these people who are more mature than them to refer people to. So, together, the body of Christ is ministering. Everybody's involved. The immature people are not trying to do things that they're not yet able to do because there are people here who are active. The people in the center, the leadership, are not trying to shoulder everything because they have plenty of people to uh, mobilize. seems to me that's the model that the New Testament is is laying out. Now, if that's going to happen, there's three things that have to happen all the time. The first thing is, everybody who comes into the church needs to be given that vision. They need to be told of their moral responsibility to participate in the sanctification of the people around them. That that's what they've been called to. And that vision, we want to hold out all the time. In small groups, Sunday school classes, preaching, whatever vehicle we have. Second... If you give people a vision, you need to call them to commitment. How about making structural life decisions to position yourself to be part of what God is calling you to do? For example, let's say there's a couple who's begun to give themselves that that kind of ministry, they've begun to realize their particular gifts, they're receiving ministry from others, and the husband gets an opportunity for a very cool job in a city across country. They don't actually need a bigger house. They don't need a better car. They don't actually need more money. Why wouldn't we have that conversation with them? Uh, Why wouldn't we at least engage the conversation about why you're making that decision? Will that decision position you more to be involved in the larger work of the kingdom of God? Maybe you should say, it's a wonderful opportunity, but we praise God for what he's called us to. It is our life to be part of this. We're going to stay committed. Uh, third thing, as you're calling people to commitment, it's sort of unloving and unkind to give people a vision and call them to commitment, and they don't know how in the world to do this thing they're committed to do. So you've got to train, train, train. I think Tim and I both have given our lives to this, but we believe the, the local church should never stop training people. You don't have a, a training class for three months and never have it again for five years. Because everybody needs to be trained so they can answer the question, here's what it looks like for me to be part of what God is doing in the lives of somebody else. So we never stop giving people vision. We never stop reminding them of their part in God's work. We never stop calling them to structural life commitments. And we keep training, training, training. That's
0: really... Wise. Uh, It made me think, you know, uh, Samson's strength was tied to his hair. Is it possible your wisdom is tied to your mustache? Well,
1: he's been saving that. Hey. It's, it's, I have to say this. Because it's not actually a mustache; it's a mutation. I have three of them on my back. So that was very, that was very hurtful. Ted has one on his knee.
0: Runs in the family. My mom had
1: one right here. Was so sad. We'd say, "Mom, shave. We're going out to eat."
2: Hey, you and I, you and I know that Ryan didn't come up with that line. No. Somebody, somebody had to give him that line. It Multiple actually, people. It actually wrote came that in. in the they form of a question, it, right? and he <laughs> <laughs> stole it.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, a follow-up question was, is, Tim, have you ever had mustache envy? I have Working with Paul all these years. It was,
2: it was funny. When uh, I left my church in Clemson, it was because of Paul. Paul, they were looking to add another pastor on the staff. And uh, when I left, uh, Paul came down and preached. And I think in, in the final service when I was there, right before I actually took off, uh, they gave me what was kind of a makeshift mustache that they taped onto my face you know, because they knew I was going to work with Paul it's kind of funny
1: it's very sad in ministry when your mustache is better known than you Actually, when, when there is a Twitter site with your, of your mustache
0: yeah there is Paul Tripp's mustache it's a Twitter account. That, that may work to your advantage in your case though yeah
1: <laughs> so, Somebody, somebody recently did an interview of me of an upcoming event that was just my mustache floating in the air. So I've now been pushed aside. It's my mustache that's doing the ministry.
0: Well, as the moderator who derailed the train, let me bring it that's back. Right.
1: And there are a couple other things I want <laughs> um, So let's go
0: back to this training thing. Uh, how, can, how can Christians grow... In this thing of um, in every member ministry or one anothering, how, how can first pastors train them? What's that look like? And, and then on a church member responsibility, how do they pursue that and grow in it? Well, the get way, better the, at
1: it. Again, the way I think about this is you want to start with your core leadership. You want those people to be trained, you want that group to be the best mutual ministry, small group in your church. You Wouldn't it be wonderful if people would look at that core group of leadership and say, if we could experience what they're experiencing, we'd be so excited. And that, that's like an infection then that moves out. And then you, you, you call people to that commitment and you make training opportunities regularly available. Uh, and, and I think it's important that you place that training Not in this weird world of formal counseling. Where I have to sign up as a counselee and you have to announce that you're a highly trained professional. You, you, You stick that in everyday life. There are times when I lose my way and I need Luella to put her hand on my hand and say, what are you doing? What's going on? And she reminds me of who I am She reminds me of the gospel. That's where you want to put it. Or one of my grown married children texts me, Dad, what do I do about this? That's where it's going to live for most of us. Most of us won't be in the office. Most of us won't have those kind of formal relationships. But we need to to have our potential for those encounters uh, raised. For example... Let's just say uh, Sally is going through her 15-year-old son's book bag because she can smell it from the kitchen and it's three stories up in his bedroom because there's been lunches from probably three years ago still in their book bag, and she finds a joint in his book bag. For those who are not into current or culture, I don't mean a knuckle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking well, about it would, marijuana. A knuckle would be trouble, too, though. That's right. Yeah, that was, if uh, you find appendages in there, it's a whole different yeah. issue. <laughs> uh, and she calls you on the phone. <laughs> what happens next is what we would call counseling. What happens next mm. is personal ministry. I'm not just concerned about all the, all the unbiblical advice-giving by professionals. I'm concerned about the thousands and thousands of those encounters that take place every week in the body of Christ. And people don't realize what what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so here's a very significant spiritual issue. And very often we just give quick advice out of our hip pocket, not really thinking about how the advice you give is going to set that family on a very important trajectory. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't it be wonderful for me when I got that call to feel like I have some sense of what I should do next. Mm. That's training. Yeah. It's, it should live at street level in everyday life.
2: You know, I, I, think, I think this is a, a really critical place where you're wanting to give folks very practical skills because you know, if, you, if you talk about let's be more intentional about our relationships, let's get more involved with one another. Typically, we're going to err on the side of saying, well, how do I... You know, point out the sin in this other person's life. Uh, how, you know, and, and so we, we almost, without realizing it, encourage people to do awkward, inappropriate things that are unloving. And they think that they're actually doing what we've asked them to do, to be more intentional. And I would say three great categories to, to think about as, as people interact with one another within the context of the body of Christ would be the category, category of the good the hard, and the bad. And whenever you're interacting in a relationship and you're getting to know someone, what are the good things that God is doing in their life? I want to lead there. I want to be on a scavenger hunt for God's grace and the mark of the Spirit that I see in their lives. Then I want to be listening to the hard things. What are the difficulties that they're experiencing? I want to be attuned to that. I want to be prayerful about that. I want to encourage them through those difficulties. And then we can talk about you know, the, the responses, the struggles, and the giving in to temptation and sin. We can get there. But those are, I think, nice categories. And I mentioned this uh, during our break. If you look at John's letters to the seven churches in Ephesians, the only church that he starts with the bad is, I think, the church at Laodicea. Every other church, he starts with the good and the hard. And so there, just as a practical paradigm... For interpersonal conversations, I want to listen for and find the good in, in what God is doing in people's lives. I want to see the difficult, and then I want to be concerned about the bad. And how can I, even in those contexts, encourage someone to grow in grace? Yeah.
1: You know, I think what often happens with people as they're, they're going through difficulty, that the, the difficulty looms so large it clouds their vision of God's presence and His grace. I was sitting uh, with uh, a family that you would say was a very broken, uh, rather chaotic situation. As they, and they were so discouraged. And as they told their story, I saw God's grace all over the place. But they didn't. And that's where I started. I, I, started, I, I, don't, I, don't want, I said to them, I don't want to in any way minimize what you're going through. But I've been blown away by the grace of God this evening. I start talking about that husband has tears Mm -hmm. streaming down his his face. The the wife reaches over and grabs the hand of her husband. They were holding on to that grace with both hands. Mm -hmm. That's what they needed that night. We were going to get to the hard stuff. Mm -hmm. But they needed to see that God is with us and in us and for us. And they had lost sight of that.
0: Something to to add, too. You guys uh, talked about this um, at lunch today. uh, That part of the equation is just doing it, just doing it. So the training, very important, yes. There is a way to botch it, for sure, uh, to be less encouraging than you could. Um, But I think most of us feel like oh, I'm not Paul Tripp. I couldn't figure out all the grace buttons to push, and I don't know what to say, and I, I don't have enough Scripture memorized to be able to encourage here. Um, but, but at lunch, you guys said, just do it. And I think that's part of, it, part of the equation. Here, here's a skill that anybody in this room can do,
2: and I don't care how old you are. You can listen to someone well, and you can say this after you listen well, how can I pray for you? That, that's biblical counseling. And, you know, that's not going after the jugular and what's the sin in your life and what's the idol. Listen, keep your mouth closed. You don't have to give advice all the time. You're going to have opportunities to do that as you build trust and relational capital. How can I pray for you? That, that ministers to people. I, that, when people do that to me, I, I, am, I am so helped and encouraged. When people say, can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? That, that's, that's, I mean, you know, it's not rocket science. It really isn't. And we want to kind of, you know, move quickly to this kind of formal counseling, professional skills, all that. Do we need to know all the current modern problems and diagnoses and techniques and things of that nature? But when it comes to everyday life, listening, how can I pray for you?
1: And, and I would sort of repeat the theme of what I said today. We're not people mechanics. Mm-hmm. It's not a, I'm going to fix you agenda. It's, it's how can I reflect the love of Jesus? How can I encourage uh, confidence in the Savior? So maybe the question is, what does it look like to love a person who's going through this? Mm-hmm. Maybe that would be just going over to their house and babysitting the kids and saying, get out of the house. Uh, maybe that's just... Uh, a card that says, uh, my heart is for you. I have a sense of how hard this moment is for you. I'm praying for you. I mean, just asking that simple question, what does it look like to enter in to this situation with the love of the Lord Jesus?
0: And is this just when there's sin that needs confrontation or just when there's a problem that needs comfort?
1: No, because you're, you know, you're, you're building relational capital all the time. I, I said it this way again in our, our lunch conversation. It's too bad we couldn't fit all of you in the room. Uh, that if, if, if I have hard things to say to two people and one of them doesn't know me at all and one of them has grown to know me and they know that I love them, which one is predisposed to listen to what I have to say? It's obvious. And so I take my relationship seriously because I don't know when the love that we've developed is going to be employed by the Lord in a very important moment in that person's life. So I'm not just looking for ministry moments. That's just kind of weird and creepy. Because, you know, I, I now you now know I'm your ministry target. I don't want to be your ministry target. I want to have a... a God-honoring love relationship with you.
2: And here, here's a way of knowing whether or not you're doing that well is whether or not people come back. If people aren't coming back, then something's wrong. If they are, they're feeling as if you're welcoming, you're listening to them, you're caring for them.
0: That's good. Uh, someone asked, what's the relationship between um, relationships and my own Bible and prayer and communion with the Lord, or how does the vertical relate to the horizontal? I think the, the the question really is, does my devotions my quiet time does that does that feed into me being ready and quick and eager to speak into people 's lives and how Tim? you know you um,
2: at least. When I've, when I've been doing, in more formal context, pastoral ministry, discipling, one-on-one, um, it was not unusual for something that was striking me in terms of my own uh, prayer and Bible reading or maybe something, a book I was reading, for that to, to enter into a conversation I would be having with someone. Now, I wanted to make sure it fit, but uh, there's oftentimes a, a direct connection but I think, I, think it, I think it goes both ways. I mean, they're, they're feeding and informing one another. My time in the Word is, is informing my conversations with people. My conversations with people are coming back and informing what I'm thinking about as I read the Scriptures. How, does, how do the Scriptures relate to real life that I've been encountering and
1: experiencing
2: in my relationships with other people? So it's a, just a nice, uh, a nice relationship between the two.
1: And I think there, it's, it's one of the things that happens to me in that uh, regular personal time of devotion and meditation on the gospel is it develops in me that renewed sense of my own need. Mm-hmm. That, that I am surely more like than unlike any person I would minister to. And, and that does uh, introduce health into my ministry to other people because I'm not a fixer. I'm not thinking that I've arrived and you haven't and I'm going to help you get there. Uh, and then, then uh, invariably, like Tim says, uh, if, if I think about the people that I regularly me- uh, meet with, I, I don't have a regular counseling schedule, but there's a regular group of people I meet with for just fellowship in the things of the Lord. Invariably, I'll think of conversations that we've had that will come to mind. Uh, as God works in my heart, He's also uh, crafting me for ministry to other people. So I think there's a, there's a very important contribution of those personal times to the, the ministry of friendship, and fellowship that we've been we've been talking about. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the answer I, I think is in the passage you you preached on earlier, Paul, Colossians three six three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, and then you speak and
1: admonish one another. Can I can I, I, I give a, a caution there? Yeah. I think it's very very important. Having said that, that you not let your personal devotional time be kidnapped by ministry. Mm-hmm. So when you're there, all you're thinking about is other people. Very often when I'm doing a marriage weekend, I'll say to wives, I want to pastor you for a moment. Please don't sit here and listen for your husband. Listen for you. And if you're a husband, don't sit there and listen for your wife. And so I don't want to get to the point where my personal time between the Lord doesn't have me sitting at the feet of my Savior with an open heart, it just I'm always thinking of, of the people in my life because it loses a very important piece of its significance if that happens. And that is a temptation. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. Mm. Someone asked the question, is there a category of deep, close, godly relationship for which there's uh, little conflict? Is it possible for a relationship to grow and for it to be godly and uh, to be pretty easy and peaceful because guys just or guys and girls or husband and wife just get along?
1: Not if it's with me okay <laughs> i I mean, I think Tim may have risen to that level of sanctification <laughs> where he's a southern fellow they're nice that's right they're just <laughs> they're, they're so nice I could. I these, these he sub- actually thought I was going to do it. These southern, <laughs> these southern guys, I never know if they're mad at me or not. Yes. Now in Philly, you know. That's right. There's no doubt. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, I, I think that that by God's grace, incredible transformation can happen in a relationship. I, I think of where Luella and I were in our early days. I I mean, there are times when I look in at that couple and I think, it's hard to imagine it's the same couple. And there's a way in which now there's an easiness to our relationship. I didn't say sinlessness, but we get at confession and forgiveness so much more quickly Uh, We de-escalate things so much more quickly. Praise God for that. Would I say our relationship is completely conflict-free? No. Uh, But we really do celebrate uh, the wisdom of God's Word and the presence of His grace in our marriage because it's rescued us from us. Uh, And And so we've developed a a culture in that relationship where we're we're just not afraid to go after things as we once were. Uh, I can remember the early days, we we took seriously that passage that says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. And so we'd be laying in our bed, propping our eyes open, (laughs) waiting for the other person to confess first. (laughs) (laughs) We had more sleepless nights just out of stubbornness. And, and, and now it, it's just not like that. So it's, it's that balance. Are, are we free of sin? No. Have we grown? Yes. Is there room to grow? Yes. Yeah. And I
2: would say that we need to grant ourselves room for differences in terms of temperament, how we're hardwired, you know, our personalities are different. Too, you, know, you might have a couple that's, that lives more out loud than another couple. And, you know, there, there's, there's no one couple or relationship that's, that's normative. The question that you're looking for is, is there growth and grace? Are you seeing more and more the fruit of the Spirit? That, that's what you're after. It's not, how come my, my relationship with my spouse doesn't look like Tim and Barbara or Paul and Luella? Um, it's, are we as a couple, given who we are in terms of how we've been hardwired, temperamentally, our own unique sins and struggles, our sufferings, our history, all of that. How are we together growing in, uh, in grace? And uh, I think that means sometimes it, that conflict between couples is going to look different. I know a couple that works at CCF and uh, what conflict looks like in their home is when she asks him to do something and he raises the newspaper to avoid having to look at her. <laughs> Now, that's very different than what conflict looks like in my marriage, all right? My wife and I are much more verbal, and, and uh, but he would say there's really no difference in kind. There may be in degree, but it's the same struggle. There's that same conflict going on, but it just looks differently, I think, from couple to couple, from relationship to relationship.
1: Well, I would add, even, even within a relationship, let's say marriage, the two people may have different ways of going after those things that are within biblical boundaries. So Luella would be slower, more contemplative in her way of dealing with things. I want to get at it. I mean, there, there was one moment when uh, I'm, I'm sort of saying, we've got, we got to deal with this. And she walks into the kitchen, and I follow her, and I say, we got to deal with this. And she walks upstairs into the bedroom, and I follow her, and say, we've got to deal with this. She walks into the bathroom, and she finally said, I'm trying to get away from you. <laughs> you're, you're not getting something here. And she, was, she wasn't being mean. She was just saying, I need space. I'm committed to deal with this thing. Uh-huh. But this is not the way I do it. And I've had to learn not to ask her to deal with those things in the way that I would deal, deal with it. Mm-hmm. She's just as committed yeah. to deal with those things in a biblical way. But the nuance of that is different for me. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. All right, let's talk about forgiveness. Uh, Tim, your your message uh, just a a little bit ago um, probably raised some questions for people. They're probably wishing that they could have submitted questions after that talk and not before. Um, So forgiveness isn't forgetting. And forgiveness isn't the same thing as reconciliation. And forgiveness isn't the same thing as trust. Suppose someone here says, uh, "You just obliterated everything I think about when I think about forgiveness. I think of forgiveness as being this blanket and it being unconditional." And uh, really, really, I mean, can you just go at it again, kind of maybe give a a buttress defense for what you said just a little bit ago? Yeah, I
2: think I'm just trying to to highlight the horizontal piece is a little bit more complex than the vertical, in some sense, you know. And whenever you're dealing with another person, issues of trust, um, issues of not forget, you know, of always remembering what was done to you, those things are much more nuanced and complex. And I think Scripture certainly uh, uh, speaks to that. And, and uh, I think the, the passages that I referenced particularly clarifying that Jeremiah 31, 34. I will, I will, you know, separate your sins from the east and west, and I will remember them no more. Just really getting a sense of what that word remember is. It's not a memory word. It's a covenant word. It's a promise word. Um, I, I think it's important to nuance it that way because I think it's much more realistic and true to how God made us as human beings and the reality and the, the dynamics of, uh, of sin and, and how they play themselves
0: out. Do you think some people think that they struggle with for, uh, forgiveness because they think it means total forgetfulness?
1: Sure. Yeah,
0: I, I see it all the
1: time. Yeah. Um, and, and let me give you an illustration. Let's, let's pretend that I'm, I'm in a business with a brother in Christ and I discover that he has embezzled a major amount of money that have put the business at risk. Now I forgive him. I vertically let go of that offense and trust it to God. I don't treat him vengefully. But I realize that he, in, in ways that are very significant, is enslaved to material things. That he's attached his identity and meaning and purpose to material things. And that war is still going on inside of him. And so I cannot entrust any longer my financial well-being to him. It would be unwise. In fact, it would be not loving to him Mm -hmm. because that would tempt him more. He would have more wherewithal to do the same thing again. So in that way, you could argue that not continuing the business together is an act of forgiveness, I'm loving this man. I'm ministering to him. But I'm also being wise in terms of the call of God to be a good steward of the resources God has given me. I'm not unforgiving. I care for that man. I want the best for him. I want God's best for him. But we can't do business together right now because there's still a spiritual war going on in his heart that I don't have the power to remove. I think we're often in those situations. And I think it does become very confusing When you say, if you forgive a person, you'll always be fully reconciled to that person in the way you were before the offense. It's just unwise. This side of eternity, that's not always a wise choice.
2: I actually think that's what Jesus is getting at in that complicated, you know, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. Um, If uh, he takes a tunic, give him another It's that idea of going the distance with people. What you're saying is this, and I've actually had to do this in my own family with my younger brother. Um, I had to say, I love you. I'm committed to you. I want to have a relationship with you. And I'm not closing the door on the possibility of us having a relationship. And when you're ready, I'm ready. That was me turning the other cheek. Mm. I'm saying, I'm still here. You know, I'm not going to shut the door on this relationship. But I can't continue to let you do X, Y, and Z. It wouldn't be loving. It would not be the uh, proper thing to do in relationship to my wife and kids. Uh, and and so, you know, I want you to hear me loud and clear. I love you. I'm here. When you're ready to do the relationship right and us have a meaningful relationship, I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in.
1: I, I think of, of it this way, that the, the love of forgiveness includes refusing to return to that cycle of evil again. Because that's not good for you. That's not good for me. That's not honoring to God. Now, if we could be in a different place, I'm all in. This is not an act of vengeance. I don't want to hurt you. I'm not saying, you treat me this way, you don't get me anymore. But I'm recognizing that what is necessary for us to have a relationship is not presently here. That's a grief to me. I would love to, love to be able to return to that, but it's not always the case. Speak to someone
0: who hears this and thinks, oh, good, I, I guess I do forgive that person. Uh, it, and yet wall is up and uh, they really haven't. So, so now they've, they've used this as an excuse to say, I forgive you, deep down in their heart. They
1: still hate the person. Well, I tell you what. I what I immediately think as you began talking is don't try to, make that assessment by yourself. I am, I am so easy, easily able to swindle myself.
0: You mean the person who's yeah. thinking they forgive right. the person. I'm they so,
1: a- I'm so yeah. able to recast something as forgiveness that's actually vengeance. Get to a mature person, get to your pastor, and uh, talk through what you're feeling, what you're doing, because what you may think is forgiveness may actually be holding on to the offense, it may be vengeance. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's nearly impossible for me to clarify my, atten- my intentions by myself. Uh, I had a moment like that where it was very critical and I went to the five people that know me the best that could just weigh in. And I just got a unity of response. That let me know, know what I needed to do next. Mm, okay. I couldn't have done that by myself. I was too close. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, that's a, and by the way, that's a great application for what we're talking about when we talk about one anothering. Mm-hmm. Um, s- being willing to seek out godly counsel when you know that they might tell you what you don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? I like to surround myself with people that are going to kind of you know, feed me what I need to hear, what I want to hear. But saying, I, I need to open myself up to uh, other counsel, people that are going to potentially see this differently. It's going to be painful for me to let go of what I think is right and what I've convinced myself is true. But I need to be, I need to be humble enough to put myself in that situation. I tell you, I, I, don't, I don't go there naturally. And, and, uh, but it is, it is a mark of the spirit at work in a person's life when they're willing to do that.
0: What I like to do is get counsel from people, but I tell them the story in a way that they are inevitably going to Agreed exonerate sure. me.
2: Sure, yeah, and you say, surely as smart as you yeah. are, you'll
0: agree. In this me. idiot, you know, you go on. <laughs> uh, kind of related to that, someone wrote in. We know that hearts are, are sinful and, and sneaky and deceitful. Um, but is it possible to be too introspective and too suspicious um, and then to, to be too negative or constantly negative in our assessment of ourselves? That, that is a great question.
2: I do how people change seminars all the time. And I, I typically say there are two types of people here swinging in different directions on the continuum. There are unreflective activists People that just like to be busy and they're probably thinking, oh, Tim, you're complicating Christian life. We've got, you know, people to win to Christ. We need to get out there. There's work to do. The culture's going to hell in a handbasket. We've got to win people for Jesus. And then on the other end, though, you have what you might call the morbid introspectionist. And they're going to tend, whether they're hardwired temperamentally, whatever has uh, potentially happened to them, they struggle in that way, they're going to tend to just continually turn inward. And uh, and there's a real caution, I think, as we think about self-examination. And and the Bible's very, very clear. Psalm 139, search me, O God. Um, Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What's Paul saying? Make sure your motives are pure. So he's asking us to look within. And uh, I think that the the two things that need to be a part of godly self-reflection and self-examination are things that move you outward in two directions. Um, And that first movement outward as you look inward and as you see your own struggles and weaknesses and sins is you are immediately moving outward to Christ for grace. If that's not happening, then then we have have some issues. And then the second movement outward is this this turning inward and self-examination is not only moving me outward to flee to Christ for grace and to grow in gratitude for his mercies for me, but it's moving me outward in new ways to other people. Um, that that's where we that's where we want people to be moving. And so, yes, I, I do think there there is a danger uh, in becoming morbidly introspective, uh, feeling this sense of guilt and shame, and being overwhelmed with that. That certainly can happen. And more, some of us in this room are more susceptible to that than others.
1: It's it, and it is a place where where the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Because in normal human culture, I establish my sense of well-being by assessing my performance. Mm. And I establish acceptance by, of others by the degree of my performance. This is a different ballgame. Mm. Uh, I don't have to beat myself up because I'm not measuring up because Christ Jesus measured up on my behalf. My well-being is not based in my measuring up.
0: So it's not a humble and godly thing to remain in guilt and not go to grace and gratitude. No,
1: it's not. Because in fact, my confession that I don't measure up and my celebration of the fact that Christ did is what honors God. I mean, to the degree that I keep beating myself up, what am I doing? I'm rejecting the sacrifice of Christ. How is that honoring to God? How is it honoring God to be so defeated that I can barely get out of bed in the morning because I'm, I'm listing all of my iniquity every day? How is that? I mean, that's, that's the exact opposite of the gospel. The gospel is that uh, in the face of the impossibility of my ever measuring up to God's standard, Christ did that for me. Now, that doesn't mean I don't care about growth. Of course I do. That I don't want to do better. Yeah. But at the deepest level, my security rests in the performance of Christ on my behalf. Mm-hmm. He is my righteousness.
0: Yeah. And in light of that, you can have a, a self-forgetfulness that allows you to focus on loving others, and I, right? And, and I, I,
2: I mean, I think, I think all this is right. I think... Um, one of the things that, that also has to factor in here is there are probably people in this audience who have either had something done to them or they've done things that they're deeply ashamed of and they struggle with deep shame and guilt. And that's a whole different issue of growth and grace. And I would commend to, uh, to you if that is a struggle of yours um, and if you're working with people that struggle with shame and guilt, uh, guilt deep residual shame and guilt, they feel dirty and unclean, again, because they feel like they've been contaminated by something that's happened to them or because of something they've done. Um, shame Interrupted by Ed Welch. It's a new book, Shame Interrupted by Ed Welch. I, I really would commend that, that book to you. Um, it, it really does a nice job, I think, of addressing uh, the uh, particularly the shame side of the human condition and uh, the impact of sin and suffering that uh, that we we experience. So okay. that's good.
0: Uh, looking outward to people now, other people, um, not just ourselves. Someone asked, "Is there a point when you're trying to speak into another's life when all you get in return is uh, manipulation and meanness?" Um, does the proverb, "Do not answer a fool according to his folly." fit into this whole equation of our relationships with others? How, how does it work?
1: You know, sure. You, you've got to recognize futility. Uh, you you have to recognize your limits, that there there is a moment where you've said everything you can say, hmm. and uh, that what you do after that almost begins to get in the category of trying to do God's job. You're going to do whatever is necessary to get change in a person's life. And, and I think when you're there, it begins to go dark. You, you actually may deepen the trouble. You're, you're on somebody like Skin, and you're looking at it for every opportunity, and it just becomes uh, um, uh, oppressive. Um, now, that doesn't mean I give up. Because I believe in the power of Almighty God. I, I have to share this example. My grandmother was a dear, sweet believer. She was blind. And uh, she memorized extensive portions of Scripture just by listening to them on tape over and over again. Uh, she would she would every day, she said, I, I travel the country praying for all of my... Children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But she was married to a horrible man. He was angry. He was abusive. Uh, You couldn't imagine living in that relationship. And she got to a point where she knew she couldn't talk to him. Because it would just make him violently angry. And so she decided she would live the life of Christ in front of this man. He came to Christ at 76. 76. And at his baptism, which I will never forget, he said, I could argue against the theology of the church. I could argue against his programs. I could say it was just a money-making machine because the offering was always always central to the service. But he pointed to her, she couldn't see him do this, he pointed to her and he said, but I could not argue against her life.
0: Mm -hmm. 1 Peter 3.
1: Yeah, and he said, finally, I said to myself, I want to know. god that this this woman knows
2: and i i would say that right there taken to a whole different area of life is the lesson for parenting teens you 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 are growing in wisdom to know when there's a moment of teachability and when you need to back off I often say, because I I tend, Paul, I'm like you, I want to get in there and deal with it. I I typically say for me, oftentimes with my kids as they've gone through the teen years, the most godly thing I can do as a father is shut up. I mean, I just have to be that, that confrontational with myself. I just need to close my mouth. And I need to be patient. And I need to say, you know what, I may not get to deal with this now. There's a pattern I am concerned. But maybe a week from now, maybe a month from now, maybe a year from now. But this whole issue of, of uh, choosing your moments wisely and not always feeling like you've got to insert your opinion into the mix to make sure everybody knows that you're right and they're wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah. and think about this. Uh, you may be riled up. It's not good for you in that moment. They're riled up. <laughs> it's not good for them in this moment. God's good. This person lives with you. You'll get another opportunity. That's right.
2: That's right. <laughs>
1: They're not going anywhere. <laughs> You're
2: still feeding them? That's be... right. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: good. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Paul has a book on uh, parenting teenagers mm. called Age of Opportunity. Um, I, I would heartily recommend it, not Thank hardly you. recommend it. Thank you for that help. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, why don't we wrap this up? Um, Many thanks to you guys for your ministry among us this weekend. So helpful. Can, can I say
1: something? You, you didn't hear this conversation because of one that Tim and I had uh, together. But I think it's important to say we are both very aware that it's much easier for us to communicate this stuff than to live it. hmm uh, we're not grace graduates uh, these truths are precious to us because we desperately need them ourselves and, and I would say if you, if you think of praying for us pray for that pray that we would be by God's grace men who, who live what we teach yeah. all the time
2: and don't leave with some preconceived notion that you're a wretch and we've got it all together um, spend a little time with us <laughs> <laughs> it won't take long I promise. It won't take long. You'll be really encouraged. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, guys. We've been helped indeed.